0: A few weeks ago, eyebrows arched across social media at a report that France's next military budget would include provision for funding science fiction authors to conjure hypothetical future menaces to France's national security. There should have been less surprise, certainly much less smug chuckling. Militaries, the well-organised ones anyway, have always done this, considered potential threats, and prepared themselves accordingly. If they're looking for fictional scenarios to test themselves against, it makes sense to hire professionals. Besides which, over the journey, science fiction writers have amassed a pretty decent record on this stuff. It is arguable that such technologies as submarines, jet engines, drones, lasers and biological and nuclear weapons all germinated first in the imaginations of authors. Whereas militaries and defence ministries have been equally reliably surprised to discover that, to cite a few real-life examples, mounted cavalry is not much help against tanks, Imperial Japan had an air force and Russia wasn't bluffing about Ukraine. If the cliché is correct that militaries are forever fighting the previous war, can fiction and or science fiction prepare them for the next one? How does this work in practice? And what can we learn from fiction written by soldiers? This is The Foreign Desk.
1: It's akin to what I do to my kids in the morning. I sneak fruit and veggies into a smoothie At one end of the spectrum, you have science fiction, and I love science fiction, but it's basically like a milkshake. It's purely for, you know, entertainment. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the kale of the business or policy world, that strategy paper, that white paper. It's really good for you, but how do you get people to consume it? Useful fiction is bringing those two together. So hopefully it's a hybrid, again, of narrative and non-fiction or a hybrid of education and entertainment.
2: Afterwards, people will say, my God, you are prescient. But the reality is people are like ostriches. They like to keep their heads in the sand, you know, rather like, I mean, other people in the 1930s saying, look, we've got to wake up to the threat posed by Hitler but come the day then you know by that stage it's too late so i'm afraid there's something in the human condition that likes to ignore warnings until it's too late
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll hear from the policy planning unit of the Secretary-General of NATO and meet two former generals turned novelists. But we'll start with a look at what militaries like to call useful fiction with Peter Singer, strategist at New America, a professor of practice at Arizona State University and founder and managing partner of the creatives network called Useful Fiction. Peter is a New York Times bestselling author. His nonfiction books include Like War, Children at War, Wired for War, and Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war. Peter, first of all, how would we define the concept of useful fiction?
1: So useful fiction is the cross between nonfiction research and analysis with narrative. So you are taking the facts of a white paper, a strategy paper, a trend report, and sharing it through scenario, through story, rather than a conventional memorandum or lengthy uh, piece that bluntly is a little bit boring. Another way of thinking about useful fiction is it's akin to what I do to my kids in the morning. I sneak fruit and veggies into a smoothie. So at one end of the spectrum, you have science fiction, and I love science fiction, but it's basically like a milkshake. It's purely for you know entertainment's sake. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the kale of the business or policy world, that strategy paper, that white paper. It's really good for you, but how do you get people to consume it? Useful Fiction is bringing those two together. So hopefully it's a hybrid, again, of narrative and nonfiction or a hybrid of education and entertainment
0: although hopefully more appetising than a kale milkshake. Can you give us a practical example? It was reported in March that the UK's Defence Science and Technology Laboratory had commissioned you to write eight short stories. It should be clear that the DSTL is associated with the UK's Ministry of Defence. How did that commission work out practically? What did you write about and for whose consumption?
1: So they have conducted deep research on a variety of new technologies and trends that will shape the future of not just Britain security, but the world. Everything from AI to quantum to human performance modification, new energy sources. And it's really great, fantastic research, some of the top minds in the world. But there's a challenge to that. How do you get the fruits of that research to be consumed by policymakers, generals, all the way up to government ministers, particularly when it's in the form of a really lengthy product, maybe written by analysts and scientists? So what they did is they asked us to take their research and turn it into a series of scenarios a series of stories as well as we created original visual artworks that helped you understand the conclusions of their research but in a form that someone is not only more likely to read but also it's more likely to stick with them the form that we used was uh, a series of stories that are set in the near future but they're echoes of moments in 20th century history. So you're giving the person the new by connecting to familiarity with the old. So let me give an example of that. They had done some really fantastic research on energy changes and what they mean for the future of Britain and the world, and everything from new energy sources, coming online, new energy networks, the importance of rare earth, but also global climate change, global competition over this. And so we took that research, also interviewed their top people, what do you really think policymakers need to know? And then we took that and wrapped it up in a story that is it's an imagined obituary of a retired officer in the late 2030s. The officer has made their career serving in wars related to energy over the last 15 years They retired they wrote a a memoir about it and then unfortunately they died in a motorcycle accident it's an echo of t lawrence lawrence of arabia but by reading this story you're like oh that's familiar but you also get all the key things that you need to know about green energy shifts rare earth etc and so that's an approach that we used for the dstl format Other examples of useful fiction, we've done it for everyone from U.S. Military Special Operations Command to the U.S. Congress to Fortune 500 companies. Again, the topic might be anything from new technology or a threat report, or it might be a positive vision of changes in your workforce. It's basically taking that important new fact and sharing it through the oldest communication technology of all, which is story.
0: I mean, It is clear enough from some of the testimonials for your work that militaries have been kind of surprisingly receptive to this. I was struck by one from Admiral Sir Philip Jones, who was the Royal Navy's former first sea lord, who described your novel Ghost Fleet as something that could help prevent the war it describes, which is a fantastic encomium to your work. But practically speaking, how does that work? And I, I don't know whether you sat down and wrote Ghost Fleet with the idea that militaries might actually learn something from it?
1: So what the Admiral very kindly was leaning into was the attributes of narrative. One is that story is more effective means of conveying new or complex information. A second is story brings in emotion. And um, while we don't like to admit it, whether you are at a car dealership or you are in a cabinet meeting, emotion is more likely to lead to action. Another is um, narrative is more likely to be shared with other people. It's just another natural aspect of it. And then finally is that narrative is um, more likely to break through the noise when there's so much else out there competing for your mind and media space. And so what we found with these products, whether it was Ghost Fleet, which was a novel, but a novel with 27 pages of research and notes. Uh, So again, smash up of novel and nonfiction. It looked at what a war between NATO and Russia and China might look like to these short story narratives, whether it's for the British government or for a Fortune 500 company what you're after is sharing this key information. And we found consistently that it actually has greater impact in changing behavior. Sometimes it's called ficant, short for fictional intelligence. And I think of the parallel with the intelligence game in that the best kind of intelligence doesn't predict the future. doesn't say Pearl Harbor or 9-11 is gonna happen. It actually helps you prevent that. And so with Ghost Fleet, for example, there were three different US government investigations launched to keep things that we had envisioned in the novel from coming true. So there are elements of that book that will never come true because of the book. The flip side is there were a variety of programs launched to make things in the book come true, most notably a $3.6 billion US Navy ship program that was named Ghost Fleet. They gave me zero dollars for it. Unfortunately, I need a different lawyer. But the point is that the narratives helped shape the real world. And again, you can do that on almost any topic. We did a project for the Australian military that was on defense enterprise reform, you know, pretty dry topic, bluntly. Defense enterprise reform is, you know, how do you change what you buy to be better for the future? It's important, but it's dry. We turned that narrative into a short story for them. What we did is we identified their nonfiction reports, three key themes, it's 37 nonfiction nuggets, what were the the multivitamins that they wanted people to understand. And we took that data and transformed it into a story that was about a student in war college, going off on a exciting mission. It was an embassy evacuation in the wake of a tsunami. But as you read that story, you got their three themes. You got their 37 nuggets. And what was interesting about that project, it was called Eye for a Storm, is that it was first published as an Australian military document. Second, it was republished in one of the most popular online military journals, so far, over 15,000 people have read it as compared to, you know, a couple hundred with their report. But among those 15,000 people was the chief of defense of all of Australia, the most senior Australian military leader, as well as we've tracked it, seven US military four star admirals or generals. So it went higher and went further by wrapping it within story.
0: If this kind of work is going to be as influential as it clearly is, how do you establish, I guess, guardrails around it? Because if you're asking people to conjure imaginary scenarios, obviously there, there's a potential license for them to come up with the, well, the, the unhelpfully improbable.
1: Absolutely. And there've been some projects that bluntly haven't been designed all that well. They've leaned too much into the science fiction side. You know, let's go off and hire some sci-fi authors and dream up things for us. And unfortunately, what happens is that they dance in the realm of magic too much. It might be too off in the distant future. It'll be a hundred years out. Well, you know, technology a hundred years out, politics a hundred years out. I mean, you're dancing in the realm of like alien space technology, or, you know, how can you conceivably be reasonable about like, you know, what geopolitics is going to look like. And so there've been a couple of projects like that, that bluntly have not been all that useful for policymakers. What we do, that's the difference between science fiction and useful fiction. So it's very clear. Start with that nonfiction research and then build a scenario around trying to convey it. So that's how you create the guardrails during the design. You're pulling from that trend report. You're doing interviews of those military officers, those scientists, those business leaders, whatever the product is. And then after you've created it, you're providing it to experts to get their insight and feedback on it. So, to give an example, we did a project for um, U.S. Special Operations Command, and it was on what do commando roles look like in the 2040s. We didn't go off and hire a bunch of sci-fi people for it. We started with their strategy. Uh, we did interviews of a variety of U.S. military special operators. We then built the narratives, but um, then before we shot off the drafts, we shared it with the sergeant's course at the academy that trains US special operators. So you had a, a group of you know experienced special operators giving you their feedback. We call it the, the giggle test. Um, so it's both the, the large strategy, is this the kind of mission I might receive to, okay, this specific part of it, is this really what a green beret sergeant would say or not if it passes muster with them then it's you know both realistic but it's also forward-looking so again the goal is not just to go off and hire some sci-fi people and dream crap up it's to blend together non-fiction and narrative that's the difference between sci-fi versus useful fiction
0: how possible is it to export these lessons about useful fiction at the risk of doing yourself out of a job can you teach militaries to do it themselves
1: Absolutely. And actually, we've been running one or two day workshops with a variety of militaries and companies on what we call strategic narrative and change management. What's the story that my organization needs to tell? And how do I tell it better? For example, we're just back from running a two-day session for the British Defense Academy. This is the mid-career officers in Britain and NATO, the future generals, and what we did is we ran them through a training session where they heard from everyone from the the former head of the US Navy to the AI lead of a Japanese tech company to the creator of TV programs like Cosby and Peaky Blinders all about how do we better communicate our key priorities And then it culminated with an exercise where each of the officers built their own useful fictions around what are the key issues for the military in 2040 and how do we better communicate them? So it was, again, both a mix of education, but also hit key priority areas uh, for the military moving forward. And what's pretty exciting is those products by those officers, even though for many of them, that's their very first time um, writing something like this. They're being turned into a writing contest that the best are going to be read and judged by the head of strategic command.
0: That was Peter Singer, author and founder of Useful Fiction. His latest book, Burn In, a novel of the real robotic revolution, is available now in hardback. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, and I'm joined now from Salisbury by Sir Richard Shiroff, a retired British general who served as NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe from 2011 to 2014. Sir Richard is also the author of the novel War with Russia, an urgent warning from Senior Military Command. And joining us from a beach north of Brisbane is Mick Ryan, a retired Australian Major General and the author of White Sun War, the campaign for Taiwan. Richard, I'll start with you because we're looking in this episode at the use of fiction as a tool in military planning. Is it not the case that a lot of military planning is essentially responding to hypothetical situations?
2: Absolutely. And i put it on the table and it was as a a relatively young staff officer writing the scenarios for different exercises that I think I first started playing around with writing fiction. And it was that that led to, you know, turning out a novel based on on the future.
0: And Mick, you were, among many other postings in the ADF, former commander of the Australian Defence College. How much of a role did fiction play in what was taught
3: there? Just looking up on my bookshelf at Richard's Book, which I bought (laughs) when it came out and read And it's a terrific book. No, we introduced it as an elective. I ran an elective that used science fiction to think about the future of warfare, not 1,000 years in the future, but 20 or 50 years in the future. And we wrote papers every year for our Chief of Defence, and we brought in a lot of writers from Australia and beyond to try and unleash the creativity of bright young officers in an organisation that doesn't always have the mechanisms to fully unleash
0: that creativity. And Richard, before you started working on those kind of planning scenarios, had you learned, do you think, anything useful from reading fiction that was later helpful in your military career?
2: I think so, absolutely. Thinking and releasing any sort of military capability is dependent on creativity. You know, you can generate and build and understand creativity through the arts broadly, but of course learning, reading fiction, reading widely reading not only military history, but fiction, it engages the brain, engages the imagination. So absolutely. Of course, there's, there's certain military fiction. I'm thinking of Evelyn War's great trilogy, which comes back and resonates again and again and again in terms of the sort of the nature of war too.
0: Well, at this point, I will invite you each in turn to begin lavishly plugging your two own recent exercises in military fiction. And Mick, I'll ask you first, you quite recently published also a nonfiction book, War Transformed, which you followed up with a fiction book. What did you think you could communicate with
3: a novel that you weren't able to do with the nonfiction work? Well, a couple of things. More people read fiction than non-fiction. And if you want to inform your citizens about the realities or potential realities of a future war in an effort to try and make sure it doesn't happen, fiction is a good way to do it. So I used a lot of the research for my previous book and then did a lot of more research on top of that to produce White Sun War. Can I just say, a lot of this really stems from a British military officer back in the early 1870s by the name of George Chesney he wrote the first modern military science fiction novel called the battle of dorking so you know england is where this really began about 150 years ago and by the way he was a he was an engineer as well which i'm not surprised by but you know this tracks all the way back to people trying to deal with the second industrial revolution, the massive changes in technology. And I think that's what a lot of authors are doing at the moment. How do we cope with the societal change and the changes in the profession of arms being driven by this fourth industrial revolution we're seeing with autonomous systems and AI in particular?
0: And Richard, for you, when you wrote about war with Russia, was your hope that you could reach out to a a more general audience beyond, I guess, the kind of military boffins and the professional policy experts who might read a nonfiction book?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. I mean, I co-authored various think tank papers on Baltic defence and the impact of Russia's annexation of Crimea. Who reads think tank papers? But think tankers and policy wonks. I mean, i have put my cards on the table here. I remembered a book which made a huge impression on me as a young officer written in the late 70s, General Sir John Hackett's Third World War, which talked about the Warsaw Pact attacking NATO. His thesis was that NATO needed to get its act together. So it was the same thinking that led me to do mine because I just felt the annexation of Crimea 2014 was such a strategic shock. It was the turning point. It was the, I mean, arguably it had been preceded by Georgia, But this was the moment the West and NATO really needed to wake up to the threat that Putin was posing to transatlantic security. And so it was a, a relatively easy step to say, well, look at what Sir John Hackett did. Okay, let's have a crack at putting out something that could be a wake up call, would be a wake up call and reach a wider audience.
0: At which point I want to ask a bit about how you construct the details of your scenarios. Mick, your book White Sun War posits a Chinese invasion of Taiwan in 2028, which is not, you know, a completely fantastical hypothetical, though obviously a deeply undesirable one. But within that context, how do you decide what seems like the kind of thing that might be likely? I guess I'm wondering how much is there of white sun war, rough draft, which you've just scratched out and go, no, that's insane, that's ludicrous, that's probably a bit of a reach, that would never happen?
3: Not a lot, actually. I mean, I, I also read Sir John Hackett's Third World War a long time ago, then I reread it in preparation for this book, because I'm a huge fan of his work as well as his book, The Profession of Arms. Um, So, you know, a lot of the preparation was reading other works of fiction. And then obviously there's the specifics of that particular scenario. And then kind of just drawing a line from where we are now to where we might be in five or 10 years, given some of the technologies that we are starting to bring into the military, some that we've had for a while that we're evolving our concepts and organisations for the use of but it was really about what kind of characters do I want? What kind of institutions do I want them to represent? And I chose characters that I think represent contemporary military institutions. So there's a mix of men and women. And I chose some of the newer organizations like a Marine Littoral Regiment or Space Force. So people get a sense that military organizations aren't just Army, Navy and Air Force anymore. They are far more complex entities.
0: And Richard, your particular scenario didn't have Russia invading Ukraine. I'm also working very hard here not to do too many spoilers, but it did have Russia invading a former constituent of the Soviet Union. And again, I'll put a similar question to you. How hard was it to, I guess, impose an amount of discipline on the story? So on the one hand, it was racy and exciting and engaging, but also to stop it from drifting off into the realms of the improbable.
2: A point of detail, it does start with Putin invading Ukraine and, and cutting a land corridor down past Mariupol through to the Crimea, and then he goes on elsewhere. i worked pretty closely with my editor and, and literary agent who had written and had experience of fiction. So I had to learn to write fiction on the job. And of course, you've got a publisher to satisfy and a contract to meet. So you've got to tie that down and you've got to be pretty rigorous in, in meeting the demands of the publisher as well. But what I found was that by constructing a narrative, the narrative in a sense began to take over. and you know, you had to test it against what does the market want. And I found my my editor was really good on that. He had a good feel for what the market wanted in terms of characterization, the nature of it, the techno stuff as well, for which I you know I found an immense amount of stuff open source on the internet. and that was absolutely the key to this because, what I didn't want to be doing was giving away any secrets. So if it was open source on the Internet, frankly, it was fair game. And a lot is to be gained there. And the other thing is to divert attention away from particularly UK special forces. I, I thought, right, let's wipe them out of the equation completely. And so it run American special forces about which there is an enormous amount to be found open source.
0: We started out talking at the top of this conversation about Richard's early forays in scenario planning. And I want to ask you, Mick, if you see White Sun War as something of the sort. It is very focused on possible incoming military technology, especially unmanned ground vehicles or UGVs. You do talk a lot about the difference that AI could make in a war fought, you know, even barely a decade from now. Are you hoping that serious policy planning people will? read this book along with the general reader and adjust their thinking accordingly?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I'm already already seeing that from some of the feedback I'm getting from senior military and civilian national security people here and in the United States and, and elsewhere. You know, one of the things I tried to do with the book is to ask the question, okay, everyone's looking at the air and sea fight around Taiwan, but what happens after that? No one's talking about it. Everyone seems to think there'll be... Another battle of Leyte Gulf and then someone will win, someone will lose. Well, I don't think it'll be that simple. You just can't make these kind of simple projections. There's a range of different outcomes. And one of them could well be a land combat in Taiwan. And it will, like we've seen in Ukraine, gradually involve more and more autonomous systems. And Richard,
0: when you released War with Russia, which I think was 2017 or so, did you receive much in the way of criticism for being alarmist?
2: Yes. I think a lot of people thought I was a complete nutter. And I remember it was published in 2016. I remember John Humphreys on the Today programme quizzing Philip Hammond, who was then Foreign Secretary, and saying, this general's written a book saying there's going to be a war with Russia. And Hammond's response was, as foreign secretary, he completely rubbished it and said, I don't know anybody who thinks like that. And so in a sense, I I hate to say this, Mick, but I I fear, (laughs) given the nature of the human condition, disappointment awaits you because afterwards people will say, my God, you are prescient. But the reality is, People are like ostriches. They like to keep their heads in the sand. And nobody wants to know, you know, rather like, I mean, other people in the 1930s saying, look, we've got to wake up to the threat posed by Hitler. But come the day, then, you know, by that stage, it's too late. So I'm afraid there's something in the human condition that likes to ignore warnings until it's too late.
0: Mick, which does prompt the question to you as somebody whose book is very, very imminent. Do you have any concerns about, I guess, tempting fate?
3: Not really. I mean, for me, this is more an anti war book than anything else. I'd like to prevent this kind of conflagration. But at the end of the day, there's only two ways to do that. One, we deter the Chinese, or two, the Chinese decide not to do this. And, you know, frankly, having done a lot of research in how the Taiwanese are thinking, you know, I've met with Admiral Lisa Min, who wrote the overall defense concept. You know, I see the Taiwanese even moving more towards that in a way they weren't six or seven years ago. So, you know, I don't think the book's going to lead to any great changes either way, but it might highlight to some people the risks, and particularly our citizens, that you know we need to think about what if this happens, what's our position as a nation?
0: General Sir Richard Sheriff and General Mick Ryan, thank you both very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. War with Russia and White Sun War are both available now. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. We're joined finally from Brussels by Ruben Diaz-Plaja, Senior Policy Advisor at the Office of the Secretary-General's Policy Planning Unit at NATO. Ruben, to you, from where you're sitting at NATO, what is the value of using fiction in defence planning?
4: Yeah, no, so the question is really interesting to me, both as a policy planner here at NATO, but also someone who actually, in his spare time, does a bit of writing and a bit of fiction himself. So the way I think about it is fiction It's a form of foresight, which is something that's very important for us in doing policy planning. Foresight for us is about challenging and rethinking our assumptions about the future and rethinking also the assumptions that we may have about our policies. So as human beings, we often have cognitive biases, right? There is groupthink. There's also another bias. We tend to think about the future looking a lot like it does today, which usually tends to be false, So this is a problem, especially if you want to make plans or to stress test the policies that you actually have. And I think that's important, especially in the field of defense and security. We happen to deal with issues that don't always happen every day, but once they do happen, are potentially very serious and have massive consequences. So you want to be prepared for as many as possible situations. Now, of course, and this is why foresight matters, no one can predict all possible situations. But if you have just one static idea of the future, you are increasing the risk that you make, the wrong decisions. So that's why we do foresight. We try to expand and enlarge our imagination a little bit and trying to think about how the future might be different. How do you do that? Without experience, without you know experiencing the actual, you know, shocks and, and risks themselves. Well, one way is to look to history. Of course, that always helps. But at the same time, history never repeats itself. And we will face in future situations that are, by definition, unique and complex in, in strange ways. So that's why you need foresight to prompt the imagination to really render new possibilities, bring them alive. And I think fiction is an especially a powerful means for a very simple reason it's using one of the oldest tools we have as human beings, that's storytelling. And I think this is something that I picked up in my own reading over the years, that the writer Will Storr wrote a book called The Science of Storytelling. and He says that story, I think I'm quoting here, is a technique our brains use to help make sense of the unexpected, pay attention and prime ourselves taking action. I just love that notion because... It really is true. You can think about things in very abstract terms and say, okay, this is going to happen. We've got data on that. And it has a particular perspective. And that's what story does. And suddenly that moment pops into view and you really imagine it. And you really imagine all the possible implications of that possible scenario. So that's what I think is the interesting tool for us. It helps us focus attention on aspects of the unknown and also helps us think through what would happen. You know, what, what we need to think about if we want to plan for those possible unknowns
0: there's one obvious area in which fiction is practically applied to nato planning and that is in the plots i guess you could call them for nato exercises for example the recent spring storm in may which simulated a defense of estonia which is not a wildly improbable scenario but when it comes to the specifics of something like that who sketches those plots who decides on how what is going
4: to be something that we need to think about so we have professional civilian and military exercise planners who do this sort of work, and they will then develop an elaborate scenario and try to build in elements of things that they want to test and check, basically, you know, to see how our capabilities, our forces, able to respond to different kinds of situations that they're in theory meant to be able to do, right? And sometimes these planning staffs can also turn to outside expertise, which is think tanks or other experts to provide perhaps more realistic dimensions on very expert issues. But there's also ways that you can use fiction in a more long-term, sort of more speculative format. So in my job, for instance, which is sometimes think focusing a lot more on the long-term, we've been able to use fictional scenarios to prompt conversations about where NATO's policies should be changed or developed. A couple of years ago, we were beginning to think about well, what NATO should be able to do, for instance, in the area of climate change and security. And so we were able to gather a couple of people from NATO allies and actually put them in front of uh, fictional scenarios, about fictional countries that were dealing with climate change security issues. And that actually helped, was a very useful way to prompt a first conversation about, you know, what kind of policy implications this might have, which down the line actually helped us to think through concretely, the things that we put in NATO's first climate change and security action plan in 2021.
0: And you mentioned your own fictional efforts. Do they revolve around this world as well?
4: Sadly not. It's purely personal and literary, working on something in a drawer at home. Perhaps one day we can talk about that.
0: <laughs> Ruben Diaz-Plaha at the Secretary General's Policy Planning Unit at NATO. Thank you for joining us on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week, and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk and The Foreign Desk Explainer was produced and edited by Emma Searle, Christy O'Grady and Steph Chungu. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.